Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, you're listening to the New Books Network. My name is Joe Tasca. Today I'm joined by Carol Graham, the Interim Vice President and Director of the Economic Studies Program at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. She is also a College Park professor at the University of Maryland. She's the author of many books, including her recent publication, The Power of Hope, How the Science of Well-Being Can Save Us from Despair. Carol, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks, Joe. It's a pleasure pleasure to do so. So, Carol, positive psychologists and motivational speakers of all kinds have talked about the importance of hope for many years. You come at this particular topic from an academic perspective. Talk about what hope is, define it for us, and why you were compelled to study its impact on emotional well-being. Um, well, can I just take a couple steps back about how I, how I got to it? Um, and basically, I was one of the few, I started off doing development economics, poverty, public health issues that I had grown up with. I was born in Peru and grew up between Peru and the U.S. And I did sort of standard development work, um, more standard economics work. But out of the blue, I ran into some findings of my own on how people coming out of poverty were much more frustrated than very poor rural people that had had no change. And I, I couldn't explain it. It defied all kinds of economic models. This was 20 some years ago. And then I came upon a group of economists, a very teeny group, working with um, psychologists, not insignificant psychologists like Danny Kahneman, um, who were beginning to think about emotional well-being and were using happiness surveys and trying to understand behaviors that were not driven by income, but were driven by a range of different things, um, emotions. And of course, income is part of the story, but it's certainly not all of it. And so for many years, I worked on the determinants of happiness and life satisfaction um, in both poor and rich places, and more recently on what well-being or happiness causes, because it turns out people that have higher levels of well-being, happiness, life satisfaction, hope, I'll talk a bit more to in a second, um, they live longer, they're more productive, they basically lead better lives. But about a 10 years ago, I started really getting concerned about the U.S. I had, you know, grown up in a poor country, but every time I came back from trips to Latin America and other places, I, I, the more and more I thought about it, I, I, I found a big paradox, which was that there was sort of more hopelessness about being poor in the U.S. And there were things that were much more difficult about it than being poor in a poor country. And obviously that's not material. It's, it's psychological, it's stigma, it's, you know, all sorts, it's being poor in a very rich country, um, which is also notoriously, um, you know, notoriously not 
favorable to, to poor people. It's sort of, if you're poor, it's your fault, which we all know isn't always the case. But anyway, um, so I started to think about inequality, not just of income, which I thought a lot about over my career, but inequality of hopes, you know, inequality of positive emotions, inequality of bad markers of, uh, or markers of ill-being like stress, despair. And I realized that the differences between the sort of well-being from everything from life satisfaction to stress to, you know, lack of hope, the, the analog of hope of hope is despair, were much greater between the poor and the rich in the U.S. than in other places, including Latin America, which is a very poor, unequal re- region. But the poor in Latin America are much more hopeful than the poor of the rich. And as I found this, I wanted to understand what was going on in the U.S. better. And I tried to you know, break it down into different things, like different racial groups. I thought this was a time of Ferguson, the Ferguson riots in Missouri, the Freddie Gray riots in Baltimore. And I thought African-Americans would be particularly gloomy whites kind of in the middle and Hispanics cheerful because that's, that really is like a, a regional trait. It's, it shows up in so many different ways and measures um, of well-being. But I found actually that the most optimistic group were low-income African-Americans and the least optimistic group were low-income whites. So at the time, it was very puzzling. I thought maybe I had a coding error, re-ran all the data. And then uh, Anne Case and Angus Deaton's famous article about the deaths of despair and our rising mortality rate due to, um, you know, preventable causes, suicide, drug addiction, uh, alcohol poisoning, other poisonings were, um, you know, were drastically on the rise. Our mortality rate was going up as opposed to other rich countries where it was going down, but it was a trend really driven by low-income whites, you know, reflecting the decline of the white working class. But I also wanted to understand why were minorities who were obviously more materially deprived, often faced uh, discrimination, why were they more hopeful? Why were they so resilient? Um, And then we also realized that our metrics of lack of hope tracked robustly with deaths of despair at the level of individuals, at the level of place, and at the levels level of race, right? So the you know the same white declining communities that we now know all too much about and read about all the time, which have high levels of death and despair. We ident- we could have identified those before deaths started to increase if we'd been tracking the metrics regularly. Because what we found was that this despair very very clearly preceded the deaths of despair by almost a decade. So I've been working on that a lot, and in the process, the you know hope seems to be so important, operating in the opposite way. But we know very little about it. How do you operationalize hope? How do you restore hope in places and in populations where it's been lost? Um, and so then I started digging more closely into hope, and what I think really matters about it is that it's very different from optimism. Um, Optimism is sort of, is the belief that everything will be all right. And hope has agentic qualities. It's the belief that you can do something to make your life better. And I, I have a couple of analogs or analogs, um, quotes in the book that, that 
sort of speak to this. One is an a, like a a comparison between the tragic optimist and the hopeful pessimist, right? The hopeful pessimist wants to make things better. The tragic optimist just thinks they will be they will be better. And then the a, a wonderful quote from Amanda Gorman's inauguration poem that hope is not a promise that we give. Hope is a promise that we live. And so I really I started to realize that it that hope was possibly even more important to life outcomes than high levels of well-being, which we know are very positive for life outcomes. And that it was this sort of, you can do something about it property, this sort of agency component to it that really matters. And that as I dug into all the literature, I realized that a lot of people talk about hope, but it's not that well-defined. So psychiatrists, for example, always say that hope is the first step towards recovery from mental illness. And yet, that's sort of what they say. There's not much more. There's not much more written about it. So I decided to stick my neck out, uh, as I have for about 20 years using emotions and economics, um, and write something on hope and think about how we could actually begin to operationalize it in a society that is tragically declining in so many ways, even though we're, you know, probably the wealthiest country in the world. This is so interesting, Carol, so many different directions that we can take this conversation. Firstly, I want to talk about some research that you cite in your book, and you alluded to this, that indicates that the levels of hope between specifically white Americans, especially white men, and black Americans have been diverging considerably since about the 1970s. Talk about why the 70s was that demarcation line and why hope, particularly amongst whites, has been declining since then. It's a great question. And and that's, as I said, that actually shows how the despair really preceded death despair. So it was the first round of the manufacturing decline in the late seventies, right? The beginning of the end in a way of manufacturing jobs, the white working class, the stable blue collar jobs that whites predominated because of discrimination and all sorts of things. And so the trajectory before this decline was that you graduated high school. Um, If you were, you know, going to have a respected, decent life working in a, you know, a blue collar job, you graduated high school, you had privileged access to these jobs, they weren't glamorous, but they were respected, and they guaranteed a fairly stable life. And um, with the jobs came communities around, you know, the firm, or the mine, the mine, or whatever, that tended to be, you know, white, lower middle class white communities and the sort of stable family. So enter the decline of the firms and then the decline of communities and then the decline of marriages and then enter opioids. And, you know, you can't blame opioid manufacturers for the economic structural changes, but they certainly targeted these white communities, right? They, I mean, so they contributed, it became a perfect storm. And at the same time, two other things happen. One is that 
civil rights began to improve in the late 70s. As we know, it has not been a perfect ride, but African-Americans began to make some progress in terms of civil rights. And another, another thing that also occurred around the same time, which is sort of ironic, was that minorities tended to be discriminated against in opioid prescription and other pain medicine prescription. It's not as prescribed as often. That turned out to be very protective, right? Because they they were not represented in the opioid, like the real epidemic of opioids. Um, The main increase in drug overdoses and deaths of despair in minorities in recent years literally have been in the past three years with the introduction and the the sort of um, widespread availability of fentanyl. But until the late, you know, 2018, 2017, the deaths were primarily, you know, white, middle-class whites and particularly men. And then one more trend that accompanied that is that I've done a lot of looking at prime age men out of the labor force. So there there are actually a lot of them, almost 20%, a little bit less, but almost 20% of prime age men had dropped out of the labor force before COVID at the time that we were boasting record low unemployment rates, you know, booming stock markets. The thing with prime age men who are, you know, workers out of the labor force is that they drop out of the employment rate ratio. So if you have not been looking for a job in six months, you're no longer in the denominator, right, of the um, of the unemployment rate ratio, in which case our unemployment rate looks better than it is because it's based on less, the people who declare to be unemployed are based on a smaller denominator if all these prime age workers have dropped out. And looking more closely at this cohort and mirroring the other trends in optimism and resilience, it turns out that minority men who are out of the labor force, they're not, they don't have great lives either, either, but they're much more used to multitasking. They want to get back to their communities, particularly the African-American men. Um, They're sort of, they've had less stable work arrangements forever, right? And then the white men who've had stable jobs and all of a sudden don't have, have, have lost their way in a way. And because marriage rates have also fallen as unemployment and other, other declines occurred to the white working class, um, they're, they're of, there are a lot that are a group that's in really bad shape, high levels of addiction, reported pain. Many of them that predominantly live in either their parents' basements or in their parents' census tracts. So they're not moving to look for jobs. They've sort of dropped off the map, except when you see, you know, reference to someone who's got mental health problems or other problems and sort of loses it and, you know, commits some crime. But in general, they're kind of off our radar screen, and yet they are a really desperate group. Um and that leads to all kinds of other social problems around that. Right. And we can certainly get into those specifics. It's an interesting theme that certainly is quite prevalent in your book, this idea that many whites now don't believe that working hard can get you ahead in life. And thus they're not necessarily inclined to pursue college and conversely, 
Blacks being used to adversity and coupled with that sense of community, uh, that seems to advantage them despite their uh, somewhat disadvantaged circumstances. It's a paradox, isn't it, Carol? It's a real paradox. And what's both tragic and yet optimistic at the same time is that the, the working class white parents don't, because they didn't have to, and now they're not, you know, they've sort of lost hope anyway. They they are not pushing their kids to go beyond high school. I did these surveys of low income young adults in chapter four of the book. Um, and what I found was that it was the the white kids who had graduated from high school who really didn't want, they were, they did not plan to pursue more education. Um, they tended to be self, you know, reliant, but they didn't trust others. They, they didn't talk about community or their communities and they didn't particularly get along well with their parents. Some did, some didn't, but almost every one of them said their parents did not support them going, you know, pursuing higher education versus the African-American kids who had more material deprivation, had much more hope for the future, much more trust in others, even though their neighborhoods were, these are both low-income neighborhoods in Missouri, their neighborhood was not great. And they, they said that, um, but they also had equally important, they had a parent or, or a grandparent or someone in their community who supported their aspirations to go to college. And, you know, almost w- you know, with a few exceptions, they were going to try and go to college. And this mirrors findings that I found in a similar survey in Peru, where I'm from, which is written up in chapter three, and we were able to get much more detail, plus repeat, repeat the survey over time. So we could see if the kids with high aspirations actually stayed in college and pursued graduate school. These are poor kids in Peru in a neighborhood where half is paved and half is not. And yet, 85% 85% of our respondents said they were going to college or postgrad education, and not one of their parents had a college education. They were all taxi, you know, informal taxi drivers, little market vendors, or they were domestic servants or, you know, construction workers. But the parents wanted their children to do better than them, and that's mirrored again in the African American interviews and attitudes. And um, and it seems to it doesn't exist anymore in the in low-income white cohorts. And I mean, so what is optimistic about it, of course, is that minorities are continuing to try and narrow gaps and making very gradual but real progress in doing so. Um, but I feel like the, the young adults that are not going to pursue other kinds of education, and it doesn't have to be college, are going to be another generation in despair because as you and I probably both know too well, tomorrow's labor markets are going to be very tricky and not very promising for people that just have a high school education and don't have any skills, right? The low-skilled jobs are going away. That's a reality. So what do you need to train in? Well, these kids don't have any idea. I mean, I'm not, I don't think the African-American respondents really did either, but they knew that they needed to get educated. So they were aiming to do that. Um, but there are other kinds of training, but for labor markets of tomorrow, you need socio-emotional and cognitive skills. You need things that you don't learn in high school. It's certainly not, you know, relatively meager quality public high school. Um, and they're, 
they're just not going to have, you know, living wages and a decent life with the education that, and backgrounds that they have already. Um, and it, it's, it's, it really sort of was one of the motivating reasons for writing the book, which is that, you know, we need a wake up call. These, these, they don't know, they don't even know how bad it will be. But if, if we continue with structural economic change that is happening, we haven't even really seen what AI is going to do. People need to train differently and just not getting educated is, is not going to bode very well. That's what's really interesting about your book, Carol, in particular. As an economic scholar, you're making this case that hope and well-being play a significant role in economic productivity. And consequently, you think that we as a country, as the United States, should measure things like hope and well-being routinely. So why are we not doing that? I wish I knew. Um, so yes, it's risky as an economist to talk about why emotions matter, but it turns out we have more and more evidence and just more and more robust evidence. It really has become a measurement science that has economists, psychiatrists, psychologists, medical doctors, because there's a genetic component to well-being, um, all involved. And it, if you are, if you just look at the patterns in this country, right, it's people with high, with opportunities and or hope, some combination of both. And I hope tends to create, you know, to increase your ability to take up opportunities, right? These prime age men out of the labor force I'm talking about, they, they are, they're, you know, they're sitting in basements. They're not looking for jobs. They don't move out of their parents' basement or census tract. You know, it's the, it's the opposite of seeking out opportunities. And it's because they're in despair, right? And versus we find that people with higher levels of well-being in general, life satisfaction and hope in particular, just do better. You know, they have better, and it's not like a complex equation. I mean, if you believe in your future, you're going to invest in it and avoid things that will jeopardize it, right? If you don't care, you're in despair because you don't really have a future, you know, you don't. And what's interesting I'm working on now, it's not so much in the book, are the links between despair and vulnerability to misinformation. Again, that's that's intuitive, if you if you don't have a purpose, a life, you know, a, an anchor in life, which tends to be, you know, some kind of goal or interest or whatever gives you purpose and meaning in life, you and on top of it, you live in a de, you know kind of declining place. There is not access to credible local news. Um, you, you get most of your news from social media. There aren't really opportunities for education where you live for, you know, creative opportunities. And there's certainly not good jobs. You're much more vulnerable to both fake news and related efforts in fake news to radicalize people. And so we're finding a real pattern there. Um, we're trying to map it. Um, this sort of work in progress, which I think will be done in like a couple of months. But, um, so it, it, all of a sudden, these emotions are proving themselves to really matter. What we sort of intuitively thought we were documenting in many different ways. 
Now, to the U.S. on the measurement, um, I was on a National Academies panel on well-being metrics and policy, um, National Academy of Sciences, in 2011-2012. And we worked in parallel with the people in the British government that were developing the Behavioral Insights team and were working on well-being metrics, and another team at the OECD, the Organization of Economic cooperation and development that has since developed guidelines for measuring well-being for statistics offices that that want to include well-being metrics in their statistics. This is not a movement to replace GNP or GDP. It's a movement to have another indicator on your dashboard of progress or whatever or lack or lack of progress, a warning indicator too. Um, and the the Brits plugged away and they put well-being metrics in in their official annual population survey, four of them, one on stress, one on um, sort of contentment or happiness today, the the mood measures well-being, one on meaning and purpose in life, the Aristotelian concept of, of happiness, and then life satisfaction. Four questions, they take about 30 seconds each to answer, and they have now tons of policies and and sort of they can compare what district is doing better, what cohorts are doing better. The new leveling up initiative in the UK is based on reducing inequality of well-being as much if not more than inequality of income. Um, the US at the time was more resistant to it. Um, to I mean, this sort of our statistical system is also much more complicated. The The UK has a much more unified statistical system. So once the idea took hold, it be, you know, it, it happened in the, their national surveys versus we have so many different surveys that, you know, and the census is not a good um, survey for this because it's only taken every 10 years. So that if you're going to detect changes or warning indicators of places whose who are in increasing despair or places that are getting better every 10 years is, you know, it's, it's, it's almost useless. So we got the metrics into some surveys like the um, American time use survey and some others, but we, and they're now creeping in and in large part since COVID at least measures of anxiety and depression reported anxiety and depression, but we, you know, for some reason, whether it's because our system is so, like, statistical system is so complicated and, and dispersed, or whether it's because we are more resistant to, you know, kind of newer, less, uh, less traditional economics, some combination of both probably, um, but the measures, you know, haven't taken hold the same way. I think now they're, they're starting to, and for one reason, which is COVID, when we, we became aware of, COVID didn't cause this, but we became aware of increasing mental health problems in this country because of the surveys that were taken during COVID, Census Pulse and some others. And many studies have wrongly attributed the increase in mental health problems to be due to COVID. And yet, like the increase in anxiety and depression among youth began in 2010, 2011, and other other increases. And so COVID exacerbated the problem. I, you know, don't dispute that, but this is a longer term trend and it has to do with all kinds of things like social media or I know me, loneliness is a huge issue. Loneliness is a 
big precursor to depression and suicide. It's not causal, but the patterns show that people, particularly if it's young people that are lonely, you you know, it, it leads to deeper and more serious problems. Um, no surprise, the UK has a ministry of loneliness. New Zealand bases all of its budgeting and policy priorities around well-being. The Canadians are starting to do that. So this really isn't crazy. It's not, you know, the Japanese now are starting to think about it. Um, and it's, I, I had, uh, I was interviewed by a, a representative from the government of Japan, which is chairing the G7 um, in June, and they want to talk about well-being as part of their agenda because they've, re- you know, there's sort of an awareness around the world that, that was made very clear by COVID, which was that it's not all economics. You know, we used to say, oh, it's economics, stupid. Well, actually, it's more than economics. Um, and people's, you know, well-being and mental health can play a huge role in making societies succeed or fail. Um, so the U.S. may be slowly starting this, but, you know, I, I can always hope, right? Certainly. And you have scholars like Jonathan Haidt and Gene Twangy who've done a great job in the last decade of highlighting how social media has impacted the levels of anxiety and depression amongst young people. Uh, They've really done their part in that regard. Now, later on, Carol, I do want to get back to this idea of how a lack of hope can certainly play a role in distrust in society and democracy that you allude to in your book. But I want to ask this question, aspirations, um, how does hope play a role in a person's aspirations in life and are aspirations persistent over the course of time? You've obviously read the book as chapter three talks a lot about this, this topic. So hope is kind of the, the overarching framing concept, right? It's a belief in your future and that you can make your future better. Aspirations are certainly related to hope and it's hard to have aspirations if you don't have hope, but aspirations tend to be targeted objectives. I, I want to go to college or I want to do a PhD or I want to become an artist. It doesn't matter what they are, but they are, they're more targeted. They're more focused on the, on a goal. And what's interesting I, here it's, this is newer evidence, um, but we show in chapter three in the book and in an article in the Journal of Population Economics where we published the results of our Peru, Peru survey, and we were able to track these low-income adolescents over time. So we interviewed them once and then again three years later, and it's hard to track the same people over time. You know, it's expensive, it's time-consuming, all sorts of things, but... We found that our high aspiration kids, 85% of this sample of 400 low-income Peruvians, um, Peruvian adolescents, 85% wanted to go to college or post-grad, or they said they wanted to, the first round. When we re-interviewed them three years later, about 89, 88% of them were still in school because there's no way they could have finished college and grad school by then, right? But most of them were still in school. They were on track to achieve those aspirations. Now, this this is in a context where, you know, most 
young adults have to work just to survive, right? It's a poor country. There is public education available, more easily available than here, I would say, and there's a strong emphasis on it. But you still have to, you know, you're usually working and studying. You know, they're not these, you know, generous scholarships or whatever we have here that, you know, will pay your living and your books and all these, and your transport and lots of other things. And yet, you know, the that means aspirations are pretty persistent if, you know, in, in that context, you have, you know, a very large majority of those with high aspirations still have them three years later, even, you know, with COVID, you know, COVID and all sorts of other things. And so in general, I think they, they do stick over time. And it is because they stick over time that people often continue to pursue their aspirations, um, you know, even in the face of negative shocks. Now, one thing I did find that kind of tended to um, reduce aspirations was if the, the kids themselves had gotten, you know, seriously ill. Because it just then it becomes impossible to do what they what their goal is or their objective is. Um, so that was a one that we other negative shocks included being robbed, you know, having a parent die, all sorts of other negative shocks, and they they still persisted um, unless their their agency in a way was taken away by illness. Right? It's hard to do what you're supposed to, what you want to do if if you you literally physically can't. Right? Um, and so. Uh, the other thing that's that's really interesting, I think, uh, or not, I think, I really think matters uh, as we think about how do we cultivate hope in places where it's been lost. What can we do about it? Is that hope is a trait very similar to the big five personality traits, you know, which is like extroversion and self um, self efficacy and you know so on. It's part so it's part genetically determined and it's part environmentally environmentally determined. Very much like IQ, you know. We after a lot of battles, we came to the conclusion that IQ is is the result of an interaction between your genetic endowments and your environment, right? And so that's that was a very would have been a controversial statement twenty years ago. It's not today. Well. In the same way, so are socio-emotional skills and traits like hope or resilience or self-esteem. Um, but their IQ tops out at about the late 20s. You, you stop having cognitive improvements just as part of age when you hit, say, your 20s, late 20s or 30s. Um, you, may, you often get emotionally wiser. Psychiatrists talk about that a lot. But cognitive, and so you develop different kinds of wisdom, say, and different kinds of skills, but your IQ really doesn't change after that age. But socio-emotional skills and traits are much more malleable through about midlife, so almost through the 50s. So you need different strategies for different age groups, but you can cultivate these traits. And it seems to be really important to do so for individuals whose environment does not necessarily do that. And there are lots of examples. The British have a wonderful program in the greater Manchester district, which is, you know, it's a declining, deindustrializing district. And the program is called Be Well. And as part of the school curriculums 
in middle and high school, they teach kids things like self-esteem, coping skills, resilience. Um, you know, there's some, some like ways to cope with loneliness. Um, and it turns out they actually do better in school because that's been tracked over time for older people. You know, you're not, you're probably not going to, you're not going to retrain 50-year-old primage man out of the labor market, but you can kind of cultivate their meaning and purpose in life, their existence, their quality of life, by simply getting them out of isolation and into some form of activity and a joint activity, right? So access to volunteering, um, you know, participation in the arts, walks in green spaces. They seem like silly, simple interventions. And guess what? They work. And actually the National Endowment of the Arts is now using participation in the arts in declining communities as a way to increase community well-being. Um, And so, you know, we need to be creative. But again, if the evidence more and more shows that people in despair are just sort of stuck in bad health, low aspirations, and worse. And if we don't do something about it, you know, the problem isn't going to go away. It's only going to get worse. Um, And so we need to think about different interventions for different age groups. There are interventions in the workplace. There's some evidence that, that, for example, feelings of belonging and feeling respected at work and having some autonomy at work are much more important than salary increases for worker well-being. You know, so they're, they're, you know, the list is long and, you know, some things are more tried than others, but we have things we can point at. Um, And interestingly enough, something that just came out, which I think is a really positive step here, is the Surgeon General's report on loneliness as actually a national crisis and something that we can try and deal with at different levels from local community infrastructure to, um, to supporting, you know, new kinds of participation in the community, a whole range of things. It literally was just out, you know, maybe this week. So this stuff is starting to bubble up. Um, but it's, again, it's novel and it's, it's not on the radar screen for sort of our main in our mainstream policies yet, but, who knows? Yes, I'd like to return to this idea of solving the problem through various strategies, looking at different ways to improve people's level of hope in life. But right now, Carol, I'd like to return briefly to those studies that you'd cited earlier about poor Peruvian children and poor Black children in the St. Louis area and your determination that that cohort is more hopeful about the future than, for example, their white counterparts. And you talked about the impact of a potential genetic component there. But are there, I want to get a little deeper here if we can, are there cultural differences at play? I mean, why such disparities? There are, oh, there are absolutely cultural differences at play. And they're often mapped sort of the, it's like genetic differences across cultures and countries even. Um, But the cultural differences that that I think are most easily identified um, are the fact that because 
perhaps because of discrimination and because of disadvantage, um, African-American communities serve a role more generally um, in supporting people's hopes, in, in helping people who fall behind. You know, it, you know, it's amazing that, that African-American prime age men out of the labor force still want to give back to their community, right? There's sort of a, there, there are a number of examples that are pretty compelling along these lines. And Latin Americans also have large informal sector communities. Everybody's your, you know, I grew up in Latin America. Everybody's your aunt or uncle, even though they're not, it's just, you know, it's like a big extended family. And that really plays a role in quality of life in general, but also, if you fall behind, you have your community. You're not stigmatized by being poor. You're part of a community, and people try, you know, try and help each other out. I don't want to glamorize these things. It's hard to be poor and, you know, an African American. There are a lot of African American men um, unjustifiably incarcerated, and all sorts of things we know about. There's an awful lot of inner city. Um, drug and other kinds of problems that are leading to violence in those communities. So this isn't perfect, but in general, the patterns really stick out that this community aspect, which is also culturally different, um, has, has plays a role. And, um, and, you know, the model for, for whites in general, but particularly the white working class, was the stable firm, the stable family, and the sort of structures that surrounded those things, right? So the Lions Club, the union, whatever, you know, all these institutions that were part and parcel of what used to be working class life. And those institutions have declined tremendously. There's, you know, there's tons of evidence of it, whether it's Bob Putnam's work or, um, or just, you know, numbers in terms of unionization and other things. And one of the things that drives it, part is this, you know, the model around the firm, well, that, that fell apart, right? And there are all these negative spillover effects. But part of it is our increasing levels of income inequality, which have separated created another form of separation, which Bob Putnam writes about very eloquently in his Our Kids book, which came out, what, 10 years ago, something like that, in which he says, you know, when when he grew up in his uh, city, I don't remember the name of the city, in Ohio, everybody went to the public school and everybody was on the same sports team, whether you were rich or poor. That was just kind of what was there. But now, um, you know, we have very, you know, along with higher and higher levels of wealth inequality, but also opportunity inequality, we have inequality in the quality of schools. And then what you have as well is that the wealthier kids play on travel teams and other elite teams for sports, which have nothing to do with, you know, the local sports team, and the poor kids don't. Right. And so yet another you've kind of begun to even divide the the basic communities where, you know, or the basic structures where communities come together that that hold together communities as communities. Um, And then you throw in the decline of the main firm that is supporting a whole 
town, as many of the manufacturing firms used to do. So um, you, you get sort of an unraveling of the whole thing. And white people were more represented in kind of those formal structures versus minorities were more represented in their informal structures, which have not fallen apart, right? Because they never relied on the firm or what or whatever um, to kind of hold them together. So it's a, it's a complex story, but in a way, it's sort of an outgrowth of the American dream. The American dream is a very individ- individualistic dream, right? It's about you work hard and you get ahead. And if you the, the, the reverse or the implication is that if you fail and you're poor and you don't make it, you didn't work hard and it's your fault. And we all know that's not true. You know, it just, it can be true, but it's not true of everybody who's disadvantaged. And um, a philosopher at Harvard called Michael Sandel, you've probably read the book, has written a wonderful book called The Tyranny of Merit. And it's how our emphasis on being a meritocracy you know, above and beyond everything else has actually led to some of the resentment of the declining white working class because they are now falling behind. They are losers in their, you know, using their traditional definition, and yet there isn't a counter-narrative, right? But if you didn't believe the system was fair before and you knew it was unjust and you just kept plugging along... Um, to get ahead, supported by community or other such structures, you're much less affected by that. And so part of what's happened to the to kind of differences across population cohorts in belief in hard work and belief in education, loss of hope or maintenance of hope has, has to do with that, I think. It's interesting you mentioned Bob Putnam's book. The subtitle of Our Kids is The American Dream in Crisis. And it was such an interesting read because he made that very convincing uh, case about how classism has, in his opinion, according to his research, has become the primary societal problem in the United States in the 21st century, whereas it used to be things like sexism and racism, but now classism has really come to the fore. Yeah, and Michael Sandel does that a bit in his book as well, In the Tyranny of Merit, um, because it, the sort of mer- emphasis on meritocracy tends to assume the system is just. You know, uh, Bob Frank has written a lot on the importance of luck and that most people who get ahead probably worked really hard and they're probably had, and they have some talents, but they also had luck. I mean, Horatio Alger, he had a benefactor. That part of the story is very often forgotten as people talk about, you know, the, the Horatio Alger uh, myth, right? Poor boy who gets ahead. He had a benefactor. Now, Carol, you identify the importance of mentors in your book, especially in the lives of young people and low-income children. Why are mentors so critical in your mind to alleviating despair? Yeah, I, th- I think that um, one, it really, one of the reasons I started thinking hope was important was tr- you know, trying to understand how people who were more disadvantaged were not 
only more hopeful, but also retain their aspirations, right? And that their aspirations seem to persist over time despite negative shocks. And I, as I interviewed these, the the kit, the low income um, adolescents in both Peru and in Missouri, I realized that you know none of them went to like great schools where they they had you know the most wonderful te- i mean the 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 superintendent of the african american school district where i worked and interviewed is a visionary art mccoy he's in the book um and he really tried to restore or and to build cultivate hope among his students he was their mentor right um because if you don't know what the future holds and you don't know how you're going to achieve it, it's kind of hard to to do anything about it, which is very much an important part of hope. If somebody helps point you in the right direction and gives you some confidence that, you know, if you try, you can succeed, it makes a big difference, particularly if the obstacles facing you, everything from, you know, lack of means to lower quality infrastructure you have to work with or in, um, or discrimination, or all the other obstacles that ex- still exist out there. Mentorship is, I think, really critical. Um, you know, at, you, you're talking about populations that are the opposite of have the opposite of helico- helicopter parents, which I think is terrible on its own. But it's a, it's a different problem, right? Um, it's that some guidance really helps young adults through times where they're making very difficult choices with long-term implications. And those difficult choices include investing in their own futures, such as through education, but also avoiding risky behaviors that really can jeopardize their, their, their lives, whether it's taking drugs or, you know, other behaviors um, or activities, you know, that can, particularly if you're a young African-American male that can put you in jail for most of your adult life. Earlier in our conversation, Carol, you talked about how high levels of despair can make people much more susceptible to conspiracy theories and political radicalization. And you believe that providing people with hope for the future is absolutely necessary for a healthy democracy. Can you talk about that? Well, I, yeah, and they're, they're, they're related issues, of course. But so, as I mentioned, people in despair, the one definition of despair is that you don't care if you live or die. You have no life meaning, any sense of your future. Um, you've kind of given up, right? And, if that's the state you're in, when presented with, it could, it's usually a false promise, right? But, you know, joining a, a group that promises to change things or to make things better again, let's say, some of the rhetoric that is all too common these days, um, then you don't have much to lose by sort of jumping into it. Right. And I think that's part of the vulnerability. You're probably if, you know, also people in isolation are much more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. Oh, you know, the the world is against us. The Democrats are pedophiles or, 
you know, whatever immigrants are all rapists, you know, or murderers. And so th- those, those, if you sort of have, don't have much contact with reality and you're in isolation and you probably don't even know an immigrant, it's much easier to, to believe that, right. Than if you live in a diverse place or you work in a diverse workforce or whatever it is. Um, so I think that's part of the story is, is structural, but part of the story is also about access to good information, science information. You know, the vaccine denial in this country is it's really dangerous. It's, it's turned into sort of denial of science and scientific fact. And I think that's very corrosive to democracy. And then not being able to, to say with confidence that, you know, something is a fact or a scientific fact or it's not, I mean, that's, you know, that we have evidence. It's certain that's, you know, there is certainty there, but the denial of those, the famous Kellyanne Conway comment, well, we have alternative facts. Well, what are those? Tell me what alternative facts are, but that is corrosive to democracy. Right. And I'm sure you have heard of, or probably even read Jonathan Rauch's book called the constitution of knowledge in which he, establishes how we came to agreement on scientific fact and how that involves peer review and other things that are cumbersome and take time or whatever. But that led to sort of a consensus on, you know, what was proven science, what was a theory, what, you know, what, and that's, that's been strongly eroded among certain cohorts, the same ones who don't want their kids to go to college because now it's also tossed into ideological uh, myths that it's, you know, a coastal elite plot, you know, college is about learning critical thinking skills, really. Um, and some underlying knowledge, of course, but it's, it's, it's learning to distinguish between what is fact and what is, you know, fabricated and all sorts of other things. And then you throw in there the decline of local journalism, which obviously as a, you know, running a local NPR station in your other other parts of your life or as with my son as a local journalist for the Baltimore sun, you're all, you, you know, you're all too aware of places that don't have local journalism and the kind of threat it's under and how that is, that, that leads people to, to sources of news that are not fact checked, that aren't proven, you know, the people who read all their news on the internet, there, there isn't a way to say that that's credible news, right? And you have people that don't necessarily have high levels of education or, you know, have learned the critical thinking that you acquire in higher levels of education, and it's hard for them to distinguish. So it seems to me that that trend, which does relate to radicalization and other kinds of, of serious problems, and it, but also just the basic the sort of understanding of basic, you know, scientific facts, the understanding of what our constitution says or doesn't say. People are told all the time, this is unconstitutional. That's not constitutional, but they've never read, you know, pe- most people don't even know much about our constitution. I mean, the, the average level of civic education among Americans today, I think is frighteningly low. And I, I think that's a huge corrosive factor to democracy. Carol, as we begin to wrap up our conversation, I'd like to end on this note. 
Some people might argue that your book is alarmist in nature, that young people in particular are always prone to anxiety about the future and confusion about their place in the world. How would you respond to that type of criticism? Um, I'm happy to get it because the, the trends are, you know, so clearly terrifying. Um, one is the trends in deaths of despair. Okay, we're one of the only countries in the world where longevity is decreasing rather than increasing due to preventable deaths, where our gains in life expectancy due to reduction of cancer, you know, the reduction of heart disease and other things or treatment, better treatment of it, have been completely eroded by suicides and drug overdoses. I don't know. That doesn't seem right to me. That's one big trend. Um, the divisions in our politics have become, you know, our politics have become non-functional. Um, and that's another alarming trend. Um, and then, you know, the level of gun violence that we have, there's something, I mean, it's guns for sure. I'm, I, I don't know another society in the world that has had as, you know, even one mass shooting and has not introduced some sort of regulation on guns. And we, with the number of mass shootings we have, we can't seem to do so. It's crazy. But the number of mass shootings that we have and the are, are reflective of, of, of something else gone awry in our society. I mean, if you look at the profile of mass shooters, not all of them, but a majority of them, they are, they're, they tend to be lone wolves. They tend to be in isolation and despair. They tend to, you know, they're, they're striking at society in some way. Those are very evident signs that something is not right. This is more than youth, youth being anxious about their futures. Of course. I mean, I just, when my, my kids are now in their twenties, but when they were in high school and, um, there's all kinds of anxiety about what's next. Right. And, but they found their way, you know, they didn't, whatever it is, one's a journalist, one's in med school, the other's an accountant, but they found, you know, and, and obviously they had more privilege than many other youth have, have but that's not, you know, they were anxious too. You know, they, they didn't know how it would all go. They didn't know where they'd go to college. Um, you know, I was a, sort of a single mother in terms of providing for education or not sort of, I was, um, and it wasn't always easy, but you know, we, they made it, we made it. Um, it wasn't always certain either. Right. But that's very different from what I think some of the trends I'm, po I'm pointing to, which are really much more extreme. Um, and the, the number now of, for example, kids going to the emergency room with suicidal behavior and other types of mental illness and the increase in those trends from 2010 to today is stark. I, I just don't think we can deny that, you know, there's a problem. We have what I call a crisis of lack of hope or a crisis of despair. And, you know, people who say I'm alarmist are digging their heads in the sand. Carol, you're doing your role between writing this particular book, publishing it, and also through your recently published Atlantic article in trying to raise awareness about uh, the so-called, as you term it, a crisis of despair. 
And we talked earlier about how this really isn't on the radar of at least American policymakers. Uh, do you think that's going to change? Do you feel that there are changes in the waters here? I think that um, a couple of things have have really been sort of warning signs that, um, for example, the the fact that we had COVID, which was an awful experience, right? But it had some, it had one benefit, which is it pointed to some of these problems, right? Because all of a sudden it was in the news. But also the other thing that's happening is the fentanyl crisis and the overdose crisis. I mean, we had 100,000 opioid overdoses alone, overdose deaths in 2021. And it's worse you know, in 2022 and this year, it's already looking worse. Um, the deaths of despair have been on a steady uptick and now they involve more population cohorts. Um, you know, you have the Surgeon General warning about loneliness as a corrosive force in our society. The Biden administration has highlighted the importance of mental health um, and mental health access to mental health treatment. Again, not perfect. We have a long way to go, but there's... A, but there, there is, there's initiative and activity in these areas. And one of the things I think is really important is that we're, we're trying to draw communities into the process because in deprived places, take rural Texas, where there's not a psychiatrist in sight, much less any kind of mental health treatment, without involving communities in identifying who's vulnerable and other things, you know, there is no way we could all of a sudden ramp up the level of mental health care providers and continue with the patient, individual patient um, doctor model. It just, you know, it's it's can't address the extent of the problem. And so you're starting to see sort of local level initiatives, community level or bigger initiatives that focus on involving communities, so-called communities of care and other other models um, that are that are are trying to uh, sort of a ways awareness of the problem, but also involve people actively in it. And uh, you know, as most people with serious mental health care don't seek out treatment. I mean, that we know that, right? So peers are not going to provide the treatment, but peers can identify who's vulnerable and help them seek out treatment or help providers seek them out. It seems simple, but it's it's you know it's really important. And other things like telehealth care are making some inroads. They are you know they're 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 actually pretty effective. I don't think they're so effective for you know extreme mental distress, but they are effective um, in in providing mental health where it's absent. And it's not clear that they're that it's worse quality because uh, you know I have a friend who's a pediatric neurologist and he works with a lot of autism kids and when the pandemic hit and they had to switch to telehealth visits i asked him if i thought you know that was less effective or if if he felt like it was you know risky and he actually said you know what it's working out amazingly well and it turns out the kids are a lot more happy talking to me um, and more inclined to speak with me from their couch at home rather than sitting in my, you know, cold unknown office. And so some of the telehealth stuff, I don't think it's a complete substitute for, um, for a good mental health treatment, but it is, it's, it's really an improvement. So 
it, progress happens gradually, but I think we're, you know, I think we're starting to recognize the problem. There are plenty of people that, for whom it doesn't seem to exist. Um, I'm amazed how often I talk about deaths of despair and people don't know what they are. And yet, you know, over a million Americans have died of them since about 2010. I mean, that's a lot of people. Our mortality rate's going up, you know. Anyway, but I, I do think that I, I do think there's going to be some gradual progress. Carol Graham is the author of the new book, The Power of Hope, How the Science of Well-Being Can Save Us from Despair. She's been speaking to us today. Carol, thanks so much for doing this. This was great fun. Thank you, Joe, and for all the time you took, and uh, I hope it's of interest.